So folks, when all four gospel writers chronicle something, that means it is unbelievably essential. All of them speak in great detail about Jesus's crucifixion, and all four of them speak resoundingly of his resurrection. He's risen, he's risen indeed. It is the crux of our faith. But somewhat strangely, none of them describe Jesus's actual moment of resurrection at all. I find this strange. Have you ever noticed that they're silent on this point? And as far as the world's concerned, uh, the actual resurrection, the moment of it, happens pretty quietly and without fanfare, much like Jesus's birth, Christmas time, humble, uh, hidden away incarnation. So it's similar to that, the resurrection mirrors in some ways. But how Jesus is resurrected and precisely when it happens is it's a mystery to us. All we know is that it happens sometime between Good Friday and the early morning hours of Easter Sunday. Thus, that biblical allusion to three days, the third days, all that stuff. But his actual resurrection, kind of shrouded in mystery. It's not unlike reading the first two chapters of Genesis uh, about the creation of the world. The precise how as to the way God orchestrated creation, the specifics, which we'd love to know, they're left sort of unaddressed mystery. God always seems to hold some cards close to the chest, does he not? But in the resurrection of our Lord, what we're left with initially is evidence and after effects. What I mean by that is we get an empty tomb. We get a stone rolled away. We get grave clothes. We get these terrified guards. We get uh, panicked Jewish religious leaders later on. We get the testimony of angels, which becomes the testimony of the women, which becomes the testimony of the apostles, which then becomes gospel that goes out to the ends of the earth. That initial evidence that we're offered here, he's not here. He has risen. So the two Marys go to the tomb many years ago on this Sunday morning. They do it at dawn to look at the tomb. As we look at the other gospel accounts, we know that they go probably to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Now, let's be really clear here. This isn't like kids at Christmas morning sneaking down into the living room expectant to see presents. That is not what this is like. They did not go to the tomb believing in resurrection. They did not go to check to make sure it was empty. That wasn't what happened. The first people who had to be convinced of the resurrection were those closest to Jesus, those whom he had spent the most time with, those he had walked closely with, seen him before miracles, all that. The first skeptics, the first in need of convincing was the inner circle. It wasn't just Thomas. It was everyone. Okay. Upon arrival, the two Marys are greeted by some rather perplexing and miraculous occurrences. I mean, you get an earthquake, you get the stone rolled back, you get angels, and you get these stupefied guards. I mean, it is divine drama. It's awe-inspiring, it's unusual, it's miraculous. Resurrection, or at least the after effects, I guess you could say, it's accompanied by these signs and wonders, this glory and this awe. How else would God mark Jesus as the great conqueror, okay? The grave could not hold him, and God marks it. So upon the Mary's arrival, God the Father marks and emphasizes this occasion in rather unmistakable ways, which I love. Now, the station Roman guards there, uh, they're mortified. They shook and became as dead men. And notice the rather delicious irony here. These living men become as dead men, 
as they're guarding the tomb of a dead man who's now living. I just think that's wonderful. Quite humbling for these Roman soldiers who are renowned for being seasoned warriors of their day. But here, they're reduced to trembling, petrified, sort of non-characters in the story. We don't hear anything else from them. It's like they're not even there in the rest of the story. And what put the fear of God in them? Well, it wasn't the earthquake. It was the angel, okay? Divine beings who show up at always at these really critical moments in scripture, you never see them sort of hanging about, (laughs) hanging out. As God's messengers, there's always mission and purpose to their presence. They tend to be um, like a divine signpost when something big is happening or is going to happen. So in this case, the particular angel, this is the angel of the Lord. We haven't seen him since Matthew 1 and 2, when he appeared to Joseph and to later the Magi. He's a heavy hitter, okay? That's what you need to know. Vivid descriptions of him harken back directly to Daniel 7 and 10, right? He's got a face like lightning as his clothes are white as snow. He is a heavy hitter. And as the Roman guards are terrified, predictably, it's the same with the two Marys upon seeing him. But the angel says to them, Don't be afraid. I'm going to read directly from verses 5 to 7. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly. Tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Now I've told you. Despite their fear, the angel rather kindly offers words of assurance and comfort. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he reminds them that Jesus prophesied his resurrection clearly and plainly, without parables, without obscure language. He's risen, just as he said. That's what the angel says. In Luke, Jesus predicts his resurrection six times. In Matthew 4, how did everybody miss it? It's almost like the angel is saying, don't you remember the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? I don't think you can get more clear than that. Jesus spoke plainly about the resurrection. The angel is merely echoing what Jesus has already said. And Luke's gospel puts it even more pointedly. Why do you look for the living among the dead? When resurrection comes, no one is ready for it. Jesus's inner circle was slow to believe in the resurrection. Despite his promises of resurrection, everyone is more oriented to death than to life. Now, as per the angel of the Lord's divine marching orders, the women hurry away to the tombs as they're filled with fear and joy. Very appropriate. Uh, And they ran to tell his disciples. Now, can you picture this? I want to just, in their incredulity and shock, I wonder what's going through their minds as they're en route to tell the disciples. I mean, maybe they're asking questions like, what does this mean? Uh, What does the future hold now? What is next? I mean, at this point in the story, what's next? I have no guess if I'm in their shoes. After you meet the resurrected Jesus, life looks different, forever altered, true for us too. So in the midst of their fear and joy and hurry, I love this, suddenly there Jesus is amongst them. There he is. These women are the first human beings to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And his greeting is ironic as it is hilarious. Why do I say that? 
because literally the way it reads, he could not be more casual or more like low key. Though most of your Bibles render it greetings, you want to know what it would be akin to saying today? Hey, <laughs> hello. I mean, it's just that casual. Eugene Peterson in the message renders it, good morning. I mean, here they stumble upon the resurrected Jesus, and he's casual Jesus. I mean, it is funny. There is humor here. But the two Marys, upon seeing him, they're just overcome. So they fall down in homage and honor, supplication. They worship Jesus. They touch his feet, which is, seems like a stray detail, but isn't. It's a little bit like Jesus eating some food after his resurrection in Luke 24. The point is, this is the physical, actual resurrection of Jesus, i.e. he's not a ghost. You can't touch a ghost. Ghosts don't consume food. This is no metaphor. This is the real, actual, physical resurrection of Jesus. So like the angel, Jesus bids them not to be afraid. And he tells them uh, to go tell the brothers or the brethren you see in some translations, go tell the disciples, go to Galilee, I'll meet them there. Again, the women, they're the ones that encounter Christ first. The male disciples, uh, they have to wait. Go tell the brethren, uh, the brethren, the brethren, tongue-tied this morning. I love that Jesus says this phrase. Uh, and the reason I love it, and I don't think we should miss it, is because even after, think of their abject betrayal, think of their failure, think of their abandonment of Christ. Jesus still speaks to them in tender and affectionate and familial terms. Go tell my brothers, go tell them. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Mended, done. This is Jesus, the great high priest, their elder brother and ours. Now remember what I said about when all four gospel writers mention something, it's absolutely 110% essential. In all four gospels, women are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Ryle puts it this way, last at the cross, first at the tomb. Isn't that good? In all four Gospels, at least two women, remember that, are mentioned by name. Mary Magdalene is always one of them, always. Why is it significant that at least two women are mentioned? Well, we have to pull back into the Old Testament here. We have to go to Mosaic Law to confirm something was true an event, an oath, anything like that. You needed to have two or more witnesses. This is Deuteronomy 19. You had to. It might take one uh, witness to deliver the news. It takes two or more to confirm that it is true. In that case, oh great, you know, case closed then, right? Well, there's one hitch. Women were not accepted as valid witnesses. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't give a flying flip about that because... <laughs> Life after resurrection is different. Things like gender roles, guess what? They get reordered. Not reliable witnesses, Jesus says. Pfft, hogwash. This is God choosing the, quote, foolish things of the world to shame the wise, even though some aren't going to accept this valid testimony of these two women. But these two women are convinced. The two Marys, the first believers, the first converts, They've often been called the first true disciples. Isn't that awesome? I love that. And they share the good news with the disciples who have some serious doubts of their own. If you read other accounts, they're very skeptical. They thought the women were crazy, all these things. 
all the original witnesses had to be convinced that Jesus was really raised from the dead. Jesus had promised resurrection, but only slowly and methodically did his inner circle come to see that he was alive. Despite his promises of resurrection, everyone was more oriented to death than to life. And yet, resurrection prevails. I found this wonderful quote from George Herbert, English poet, this week. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Isn't that wonderful? Death used to be an executioner. Resurrection, the gospel makes him just a gardener. The resurrection reconfigures everything. Everything. The world of flesh and the devil, guess what? Cannot undo the resurrection. Hell cannot prevail over the resurrection. Nothing can make the resurrection untrue. It is finished. Jesus said that. It meant something brought to completion and fulfilled. It's finished. And because of the resurrection, friends, we are now all oriented to life. We are now people of the resurrection. We have a new North Star. The people of God gathered. The church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. That's what we are. Because of the resurrection, we are now oriented to life. We are now people of the resurrection. So what are we to do with this new resurrection life? How are we to respond? Simple. We celebrate. We celebrate. We literally throw a 50-day party called Eastertide that lasts from now until Pentecost Sunday in late May. No more fasting. Lent, those days, they're behind us now. Fasting, in fact, is forbidden in Eastertide. Don't you love that? The Alleluia's, as you saw and heard, come back. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. So this is an entire season. I love it. I saw somebody ring their bell. I should have too. My bad. I love this. Uh, we have uh, one big party, one continuous feast of joy and gratitude, often called Great Lord's Day, and it lasts for 50 days. It is an entire season of celebration and gratitude. So, though we can't gather in person right now, we are still to be stubborn, absolutely stubborn about this celebration. Just as our worship today is a weapon of defiance against evil, which it is. So our celebration is an intentional act of proclamation that Jesus lives. Our gratitude becomes a stubborn, stubborn, stubborn refrain that Jesus is alive. For friends, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel, i.e. the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, makes him just a gardener.